Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Laura Cathcart Robbins. She is the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, and author of the Atria Simon & Schuster memoir, Stash, which is published today. Like today is the actual (laughs) drop date of your book. I'm so excited. She has been active for many years as a speaker and school trustee and is credited for creating the Buckley School's nationally recognized Committee on Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice. Her recent articles in HuffPo and The Temper on the subjects of race, recovery, and divorce have garnered her worldwide acclaim. She is an L.A. Moth Story Slam winner and currently sits on the advisory boards of the San Diego Writers Festival and the Outliers HQ Podcast Festival. Find out more about her on her website, or you can look for her on Facebook, on Instagram, and follow her on Twitter. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Ronit. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. I mean, we've known each other for a little bit. We were introduced by the amazing Sarah Dean. Yeah, shout out. Shout out to Sarah Dean. (laughs) Shout out to that magical woman. Yes. And um, I got to be a guest on your podcast, which was a true highlight of my year and the release of my book. And so I just feel like so happy and overwhelmed and joyful that you're here with me today. And I would love for you to share a little bit about your memoir, Stash. I am happy to do that. I do just first have to say that the On My Nightstand, which is a a segment where I read something for 10 minutes from something that I love. When I read When She Comes Back, that's still our highest downloads for an On My my Nightstand. You just made my day. And you know what? Like in my link tree on Instagram, I have the quick links for that episode of um, The Only One in the Room, the one that I got to be on and the On My Nightstand. Yeah. Because I I feel so proud of that and so, so just honored that you took the time to feature that in in On My Nightstand. Well, good for us that we did because people (laughs) love it and they keep coming back for it. So I just, I wanted to tell you that. Oh my gosh, Laura, I'm just like bursting over here. So Uh, I feel, you know, one of those smiles that feels like it's going to break your face. Yes, (laughs) yes. I have one too. (laughs) Oh, Laura. Okay. So, 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 okay. So let's talk about your beautiful memoir, Stash. Tell us, tell us a little bit about it for people who haven't gotten a chance to get their hands on it yet. It's an addiction memoir, but it's definitely more than that. It's, uh, I decided to write about 10 months of my life where I ended a marriage went to treatment for an addiction and got into recovery and met someone that I later fell in love with. So all these three things were happening, but really my my purpose during that time was not just to get sober, but to get sober for my kids. So that, they're the underlying theme throughout the entire book. I was I was 43 and my kids were little then and I was afraid because I was in the middle of a divorce that if things went left that, you know, I might not be able to keep custody of my kids. So I was really doing everything in my power at the time so that that didn't happen. I didn't lose my connection with them. Yes. And I would say that 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 is a very uh, strong current in the book. It comes up again and again and Mm. you're, you're talking about the tension there and the worry and it really does, it becomes sort of a pulse a yeah. current a current in the book all the time and so the reader remembers constantly what you're up against and you know you called it an addiction memoir so you're basically identifying it 
firmly as, you know, a firm genre within the genre of memoir, Mm -hmm. you know, that this must be the term applied to a book like yours. So what do you feel are the challenges specific to writing about addiction that maybe you encountered or that maybe people told you about before you embarked on this? One of the biggest challenges of writing about addiction is you don't remember shit. It's like all this stuff happened and I have all these kind of muddy, watery memories that are also, so the, the actual, the drugs and the alcohol that I was imbibing, they, they mess with your memory, but also the fear of getting caught, which was constant for me. Um, I have these huge blank spots in my memory. So I Mm. think remembering everything was the biggest factor. And fortunately, and I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I've, I've written ever since I can remember, and I've always kept journals, and I kept really good journals during this time. I also kept all these notes in my day planner, which was a Philofax. Yes, I remember, <laughs> I remember reading that. I was like, did she just write Philofax? <laughs> um, but I kept really good notes in those, and I have all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So what I remembered versus what happened, I was able to kind of suss that out um, using kind of the, the documentation that I had kept. Mm-hmm. But it was it was hard. Yeah, so memory would be kind of difficult. And also, yeah. I, w- I wonder if because people have this idea, perhaps about addiction memoirs, or there's an expectation of what you might find in it, if you if you found it all that you wanted to go against the grain in what was expected from an addiction memoir, was there any pressure within you to deliver something in a certain vein that would be surprising or better than or just as good? Did you have any pressure on you about that? I wouldn't say that I had any pressure on me about that. First of all, I love addiction memoirs. Like I devour them. I think they're amazing. They've really helped me and saved me a lot. But I was finding at the time that I was going through this, and I'm, I'm still finding it now, that there are very few written by women of color, period, mm-hmm. um, and even less written by black women. And and I, you know, at this time in my life, I was coming from this place of really kind of elite privilege. I was in a, in a, in a situation, I was in a marriage where we were in the spotlight. It was a very Hollywood marriage. We had, you know, the mansion and the nannies and da, 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 and housekeepers and groundskeepers. And I... I didn't see anything written from that point of view mm-hmm, about addiction. Mm-hmm. So this kind of intersection of race, which is paramount for me. I talk about race all the time. I write about race all the time and privilege and addiction. I didn't see anything ever written from that point of view. And I looked because mm-hmm. I wanted to see myself reflect it back mm-hmm. in the pages of a book. And I couldn't find that. So it wasn't pressure, but I, I wrote that with that in mind. Like maybe there's somebody that's going to come behind me. Maybe they won't have all three, but -hmm. if they have two of those three, if they have privilege and addiction, if they have, if they're a person, a woman of color or a person of color and addiction or a person of color and privilege, and they're getting a divorce, like Mm -hmm. all of those things I address in the book because that's, that was my experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in some ways, a very singular experience and in some ways not because the privilege, the privilege is so high up there and such a small percentage of people have that level of access. And yet the other part is something that a lot of people experience so much. There are so Mm -hmm. many people who are struggling with addiction. And I don't think until you said that I, I really grasped exactly how few books like this there are. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, like there are, yes, like this, 
Yes. But like I said, there are a lot of addiction memoirs and they're wonderful. I really, mm-hmm. I meant it when I say they save me, but, but yeah, you're not going to find very many by women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that, that brings me to this question of, of how you identify yourself early on in the memoir is having had a lifelong pattern of doing anything to avoid attracting negative attention, this sort of hiding in plain sight thing that you talk about. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you describe how as the only black kid in your class and at one point the only black kid in your school, you felt the burden of representing black excellence. Yes. And I was struck by that and how these in some ways really opposing forces might have affected you. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a really common theme, especially with black women in this country, but black people, I, I don't know that my sons felt it. Um, they, they, I've asked them about it and they, they don't ever recall feeling that pressure, but I certainly did. And the thing was, is I needed to be seen in a certain way in order, one, to feel safe and two, to represent properly, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, you know, when I go into a room and I'm the only black person there, I'm representing all black people for that time that I'm in that room, mm-hmm. whether I like it or not. And, you know, it's different than other differences, you know, than socioeconomic, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I'm in a room or what, when I was in a room and my mother was on welfare, I wasn't necessarily representing all poor people because people couldn't see that when they looked at me. Mm-hmm. But what they can see is my blackness when I'm in the room. So I am representing... If I'm the only one, I'm representing all black people. And so there is a standard to which I held myself so that I would represent black people well. Mm-hmm. But it it was right in line with me not attracting negative attention. I would just make sure that everything I did was better than. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that wasn't better than was hidden. And I, I had grown quite adept at that, as you mentioned. I started that at home and carried it out into the world. So it wasn't... It wasn't difficult. It's just exhausting. Exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonder you went as far as you did before you mm. broke down. Yeah, it is. Mm. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. I can't I can't believe it. When I when I was writing this book, I was like, wow, you went through it, sister girl. Like oh, yeah. I can't believe how long you kept it up. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I felt a real pull of empathy for you in that like how much how quick your wheels had to spin and how I, I didn't know how you did it no I don't either I mean mm-hmm. just just fear really mm-hmm. well right that also reminded me that those those moments you describe of being worried about being caught or that that someone might be watching you or that you might be uh you know being trailed by some PI on mm-hmm. the part of your husband, et cetera. And, and readers will discover this when they read your book. I mean, that level of uh, <laughs> stress constantly bathing your system, I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I would have collapsed. I mean, I guess you kind of ended up collapsing. I mean, sure, yeah. I mean, I had drugs, so that was good. Like, that helped. But the more the more stressed I was, the more drugs I needed, and the less my body could tolerate it. So that wasn't good. Yes. And, and there's so much to talk about in your memoir. And before I, I go to more of the patterns of behavior that I'm curious about, can you 
speak to what it was like to write about those physiological effects mm. you know to write to write the reaction of your to in your body to the drugs to the withdrawal there there's so much nuance and there's so many different stages of the drug taking and the withdrawal and the recovery how did you organize that or did you face any challenges cuz you really do separate them differently and you write about them really clearly yes I faced challenges, it, um, and that would have been the second part to my answer at the beginning about writing about addiction, if I had thought of it. it yes, it was hard to remember everything, but, but I mean, just to access the memories, it was hard, but then it was actually hard to remember it. Um, it, was, it was difficult to have that memory coursing through my body again, because mm-hmm. I had to go back to that place and like I said, I'm 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 so grateful that I have all that documentation. But what I would do is kind of put myself back, you know, go back in those calendars, go back in those journals, look at what my day looked like on this day, right? Like the PA meeting in the morning where I needed to give a speech and then my tennis lesson. And I know I had to take a pill before that tennis lesson. And by five o'clock on that day, I know I was in withdrawal because mm-hmm. I couldn't take anymore because I had to be in front of people. And mm-hmm. so I would I would sit at my desk and close my eyes and meditate and really try to visualize what it felt like to be in that place again. And I was really successful mm-hmm. with that. And it was really hard to shake it off. Like I would come out of my office because my, my process was I wrote from 11 to 7, five days a week when oh I was writing. Golly. That is yeah. a long time. Well, you know, my agent said, how quickly can you get this out? And I was like, I'll get it to you. It was November. (laughs) I was like, I'll get it to you by April. And she's like, good deal. And so I was like, okay, I better get this train on the tracks. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's so hard anyway. But then when you think about the subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. So to go back and really dig up, unearth these feelings that, that I haven't felt, you know, I've, I've been it's it's been 14 plus years now um Mm. since i felt that way and to go back and experience those feelings again like scotty my boyfriend partner whatever boyfriend sounds (laughs) teenage but um (laughs) but i would come out of my office he would make dinner for me every night which was the other thing that was another reason i was able to write the way that i was was Mm -hmm. he would shop and then have dinner ready at seven when i knocked off and he would be able to sense when I had been writing about something difficult, it would be a haze that hung over me mm. for a couple of days. And there was nothing he could do about it. There was nothing I could do about it. Mm-hmm. I, I just had to go through it. And it was sticky and yucky. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard. Do you think there's anything in hindsight or anything that you ended up discovering that a memoirist could maybe do to help protect themselves or to maybe decompress a little bit while being able to stay in those active memories? Is there anything we can do? Well, I, for me, I would write a scene that was lighter in between. So I wasn't just because, you know, there were there were sections of it that were all heavy. So I would write a heavy scene. And then I would the next time I sat down, I'd write a lighter scene. So I kind of broke it up that way. I also took really good care of myself. I worked out every morning. I'm a plant based eater. And I would make sure, you know, uh, he made me dinner, but I would make sure I was like nourished and drank plenty of water and 
because I'm in recovery, I would take care of my recovery, which for me means going to a meeting. And, you know, I would I would take care of myself and I needed to increase that my self-care during that time, mm-hmm. not specifically during those times, but around that time during that whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Very tender time. Mm-hmm. Uh, very generative and also very tender time. Yes. So another pattern you describe for you that, that you mentioned was a go-to was wanting to be in control of mm. the narrative, to be in control. So how does writing a memoir dovetail into that desire or does it? That's, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I'm so glad you asked that because if I were going to control the narrative, I would have made myself look much better <laughs> in the memoir. So I had to let go of that in order to write this truthfully. In order to be a reliable narrator, I had to let you really see how fucked up I was and how fucked up my thinking was. And some actions, you know, tell you about actions that I took, not just thoughts, but actions that I took that were I was really ashamed of Hmm. and things that, you know, my my parents are reading this book and they keep calling me and going, I had no idea there was this, this, this. I had Hmm. no idea you felt this way. Like I hid it really well. No one knew. All of my closest friends are still really incredulous hmm. that that I even needed to go to treatment. Like, and you're still in recovery. Why? I mean, a lot of people say, you know, when they get sober, like everybody knew. But mm-hmm. I was I was really good at hiding it. So to to be honest with myself about what happened was one thing. And that was really difficult. That mm-hmm. that took years for me to look at this honestly. I've told this story a million different ways prior and you know, none of it was complete and none of it was, was really truthful. And it wasn't until I started, st- sat down to write this, that I made the decision that I was going to dig as deep as I could anyway, and put it out there the way that it was, because otherwise it wouldn't be helpful to people. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the next person who is dealing with anything like what I was dealing with won't be helped if it looks pretty. <laughs> so I had to let go of controlling the narrative in order to write the book that I wanted to write. Mm. Wow. I, I don't think I expected that answer. And it, it's it's very helpful. It makes it makes total sense. I, I guess I kind of thought I was going through my own gaze, which is, well, of course, since I'm a control person, you know, I'm gonna write the book and I'm gonna let people mm. understand the story through my eyes. And I but I but I'm forgetting the part where you have to face yourself. Yeah. And you have to really level with who you were and the patterns that you had mm-hmm. and the icky parts, because yeah. readers readers are not afraid of those. And I think they miss them when they're not there. I agree. I mean, I do when I'm reading. I miss, mm. I, you know, you can tell, right, when mm-hmm. something's been skipped over or glossed over. Mm-hmm. It feels like something's missing. And then immediately I'm bored. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, like, I think, and I've said this before, like, I think memoirists become the hero of their stories, of their books, mm. not because they act like a hero, but because they become heroic to the reader for showing everything and for yeah. interrogating everything. Yes. Yes, I agree. So can you talk about the parts of your story? You mentioned your sons, and I know there's Mm -hmm. an ex-husband of note in the book. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the parts of your story that were more challenging than others to share, just publicly, not as much, you know, the craft part of it, Mm -hmm. but how you handled that and what your thoughts are on the way you approached it. Well, as far as my ex-husband, I will just say that I was 
super nervous about how he would respond to the book. And to, to kind of go back, I told him that I was thinking of writing the book. I told him when I was sending it out to agents. I told him when, you know, I got signed by an agency or an agent rather. I told him when I was writing it. Mm-hmm. I, I gave him like a heads up at every kind of step of the way of this book. And yet I was really, I was really nervous about what he might say, not because he's a bad guy and he's mm-hmm. certainly not a bad guy in the book, but because it's so intimate and he's a super private guy. And mm-hmm. I just didn't know how he would respond to having these kind of intimate scenes. And I'm not talking about sexually, but these, these very private moments exposed. So I sent it to him before I, before we went to last pass, I sent it to him to read and I was really nervous. And that's not something that was recommended to me. Everybody said, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I've been to several conferences where this has been discussed and that seems to be the general consensus is that you do not do that because you're asking permission. And I made it very clear to him that I wasn't asking permission, but I wanted, I didn't want him blindsided. Mm -hmm. And Ranit, he was so lovely. Um, Mm -hmm. He just congratulated me and said, you know, this is your story to share and congratulations. You have my blessing basically. Mm -hmm. So that was the biggest thing. I did send it to a couple of my friends that are in there, not the whole thing, but I sent their scenes to them mm-hmm. because I, again, the same reason I didn't want them to be blindsided. There are conversations that, you know, they, they had with me that were private that they probably didn't remember. <laughs> and I remembered <laughs> yeah. them in great detail and they were pivotal to the book. And so I sent them their scenes and they, they were the same. Um, my kids, uh, were not at all interested in in anything that I had to say about this. Like, Hmm. you know, my kids, they, I I have a recovery meeting at my house every Saturday. They've grown up with me being in recovery. Mm -hmm. So they're very aware of, of why I'm in recovery. They know that it was, that I needed to get sober and that they were, they were the catalyst for that. They're just not interested in the recovery Mm -hmm. itself. And And not in a, like a shutting me out way. It's just like they get on their phones when I start talking about it. They're just kind (laughs) of like, oh yeah, mom. Okay, that's great, mom. It's like I'm talking about shopping or something. So, (laughs) and they're they're young men now, right? They are. They're they're 23 and 24. Yeah, I kind of had this hope that maybe my kids would want to read my memoirs sometime. They're they're teenagers, but maybe yeah. maybe they won't. And <laughs> but I was thinking that when you were writing your memoir, there must have been a part of you that thought, well, they might read it at some point. Yeah, yeah. And I talked to them about that um, a couple of times, like I said. And you know, they've never written. They've never read anything I've written. They've never read any of my articles. They've never listened to the podcast. <laughs> like. <laughs> I'm mom and I talk to them all the time. I just got off the phone with one of them. One of them lives with me still. He's finishing college, but it's, it's just like they will probably read it or have it read to them. And I think I prepared them as well as I can for it. Yeah, I really, I I feel also that I'm in the same camp as you. I did send, and I think you know this from our earlier talk on your show, I did send my manuscript, not for permission necessarily from my parents and my sister, but just as a heads up. And I did end up correcting a couple things that I maybe 
gotten wrong and mm. temp- tempering one particular description, you know, just to try to be fair, you know, and not to misinterpret something. But it was, for me, that was what I wanted to do. But I know there's plenty of memoirists who decide that it really is none of anyone's business what you're writing. Yeah. So I think yeah. everyone has to find their own way. I think also the hard and fast rules that we can hear in classes or conferences, we have to use our own intuition and, and you know, what we want to do on mm-hmm. those. Yeah. So speaking about your podcast, The Only One in the Room is in its 15th season right now when we're recording this. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Can you share how The Only One in the Room came to be and how the show or you has changed over the course of these over 500 episodes? Oh, boy. So yeah, The the Only One in the Room um, was born out of a viral article that I wrote for HuffPo. It was actually the first article I ever wrote for them. Um. And it was about being the only black person at Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strayed's writer's retreat called Brave Magic. And the responses that I got to that article were from people of all races, which really surprised me. I thought black people would be like, yes, sister, I see you. I've been there. (laughs) And it was like, I'm in a wheelchair. And, you know, when I try to date, all people see is the chair. I got another message from an overweight white mom who was in her 50s who tried to take a yoga class and she said all the skinny women turned around and looked at her like she shouldn't be there. Like really detailed stories of people like it it opened a floodgate for people who had also felt like the only one in the room. And I I had actually never listened to a podcast at the time that I wrote the article, but I was in a class a podcasting class because it had been suggested to me by an agent that rejected my book proposal that I maybe look at podcasting as a way to build my author's platform. So I was taking the class and I needed a title for the project, which was the podcast, the podcast project in the in the class. And because all these responses were coming back hashtagged, the only one in the room, my podcast teacher and I decided to call the project the only one in the room. And and so that's what we, we ended up making that into an actual podcast the following year. This was like in October of 2018. So in 2019, in April, we launched The Only One in the Room. And it's a podcast where we absolutely tell stories of Black people feeling like they're the only ones in the room. But it's certainly not limited to that. It's anybody who's ever felt alone in a room full of people, which is actually our tagline. Mm-hmm. And I think at first, what's different now At first, I was really, it was a deadlift. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody had ever heard of the show. So I was trying to get as many celebrities and or people um, with name recognition or followers to to come on the show so that it would boost our numbers. Mm. And now we're in really, and I'm so grateful that we're in this position where we've built this platform where we, we, our downloads are consistently high enough that I can just book stories. And I don't really need for them to have any platform at all. In fact, it's actually better because this might be a, a, a an untold story, you know, that mm-hmm. I'm getting. I, I get pitched, you know, all the time. I get a lot of publicists pitching me, but my favorite pitches are the ones that come from individuals. I read through them all um, once a month and then, you know, go through and see if, if they're a right fit for our show. But if they are, I'm I'm super excited and... I can cast a whole season of stories, you know, based on those really good, juicy, only one in the room 
stories. Mm-hmm. And you you follow your gut on that. Right? I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah, you've been doing this for years. You've been speaking and writing and you've been podcasting and you've reached so many with your writing and your podcasting and with your appearances. And this is kind of perhaps a far-fetched question, but I feel like, you know, as a podcaster myself and as a writer and the people who connect with me, I do sometimes wonder if there's sort of a link. And I was wondering if you feel there's any commonality in the histories of people who seek you in your workout, or is there anything you notice about what they need or what they want to share about their experience? Or is there anything that you have found to be a through line in the stories you attract or that you want to highlight? I think for the person telling the story, there is a sense of relief once they realize that I'm not looking to exploit their story. I'm really just looking to make that connection with them, which is why the pre-interview is so important to me. I, I always do a pre-interview with my guests, and unless I can't, unless the guest doesn't have time. Mm-hmm. But I need to establish that connection with them to make them feel safe. And I think that that relief of once they feel safe is surprising to them because maybe this is a story, like I said, that they've never told before. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other surprise is when they hear that it resonates with people, you know, like your episode and your episode of your on my nightstand segment like people really connected with both your episodes you're actually because we ask people what their favorite episodes are when we're considering them to be guests and yours comes up a lot and it does people (laughs) really like it (laughs) but not just like it they connect with it there's something about the way you share it that makes them feel safe to share on the show as well which is really important for me. So I think that might be the through line is that there's this, I can see their shoulders going down when, when it's, you know, video or in person. I can literally see a transformation while they're telling this story, like, oh my God, I get to tell my truth now. Mm-hmm. And it be safe. And, you know, there there's a possibility that I'm going to have that reflected back to me or help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot of work you're putting into the world, a lot of uh, giving back, a lot of generosity, a lot of space you're offering for people to be witnessed. Mm. It's, it's a lot, right? I mean, I know you love it, and, and I'm not saying that it's a, it's a toll necessarily. I'm saying that you're generating so much for yourself and for people mm. and creating this body of work where there is acceptance and witnessing, I I really appreciate that. I don't know that I love podcasting. I really like it. I love writing. Mm -hmm. Like if that's all I could, like if I could just write and not do anything else. (laughs) I mean, you know what I mean. Do the well. It's different energy. I mean, I podcast too, and I would say like it. You know, sometimes my husband will ask me. He's like, "Why are you doing that podcasting stuff? Like, just write. You love writing, and it is a different tempo." Yes. It's a different set of skills yeah. for both of us being hosts. You know, you're drawing people out and you're making people feel comfortable. And it's a balance, right? It's a balance. And so I do think writing for me is forever, just yes. like I think it is for you. Yes. Yeah. And, but I, I mean, and I really do like podcasting a lot. And maybe it'll be a matter of time. You know, I might I might fall in love with it. I've been writing, for, like I said, for you know, most of my life. So I've had a lifetime to fall in love with it. And I think it's just part of who I am. It's definitely my identity. Podcasting feels like something I do right now, but I really enjoy it. 
mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. 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 I don't think you could continue having all this content and all these episodes if you yeah, didn't. It would definitely, true. it would definitely not let you do that. If you were starting to dislike it, you could not produce what you're doing. Exactly. So, Laura, what do you hope readers will take away from your memoir? Oh, boy. Um, just just a, an enormous question. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge question. Um, I hope that people will, you know, the, the last thing I want is for people to read it and feel sorry for me. So that's definitely what I don't want. What I do want is to expand their ideas about addiction and privilege and, and race and, and relationships. Like what, what a divorce looks like, what raising kids looks like, what does motherhood look like? What does addiction look like? What is it like to be black? Like all those, I want all those definitions expanded by the time they finish my book. And I would love for them to be able or have the, the, the ability to think about those things differently. Um, and, and maybe ask questions that they had, they wouldn't have asked before because there were assumptions that they made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are there memoirs that you looked to or that you love and would like to share with listeners that you go back to again and again? Oh, my God, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I, I know there are so many. And so it's difficult. Um, yeah, no, you can no, give no. me like five or six if you want. I'm going to try. Um, for sure, Traveling Mercies by Anne Lamont. Um, that is... It's also an addiction memoir, but it's written in this really, it was one of the few approved books I had in treatment that I could actually read. Mm. They threw away all my other ones and they let me keep that one. Oh, gosh. I mean, they didn't throw them away. They just wouldn't let me take them in. So I, I love that book. I do read it over and over. I love Dry by Augustine Burroughs. That mm-hmm. was really helpful to me. It's a completely different situation, but the feelings were so much the same. Wild by Cheryl Strayed was was really pivotal for me. I read that a lot as I did Eat, Pray, Love, which is why I ended up at Brave Magic. Um, I'm reading this book now by this guy named Keith Corbin. It's called California Soul. It's an American epic of cooking and survival. And he's a James Beard nominated chef that came from, he grew up in LA where I live. And he was a cocaine, he was a drug cook for years Hmm. and then spent seven years in prison for related charges and you know came out and got a job in a restaurant and now he has a restaurant Hmm. and his story is incredible but it's a really it's an addiction memoir but it's so much more than that it's really good and the last one i'll say is educated which i'm rereading again right now that book comes up again and again in my it does it does my my bonus daughter gave it to me um and i put it off for a long time because i'm like I don't want to read about a white Mormon woman <laughs> in Idaho. <laughs> like, why would she think that would appeal to me? Um, but but I, I've actually found it to be really helpful with my writing because she writes about her entire life mm-hmm. and I don't get bored of it. And my, my memoir is only about 10 months of my life and I was worried that that was going to be too much. So it's really helping me to kind of widen the scope of how I think about writing about my life. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it's, I think it's so important as writers, as well as artists, and certainly as memoirists to be open and receptive. I just, I have to catch myself sometimes when I start getting judgy or closed minded mm-hmm. and just about anything. And I realize what is happening? You're, you're getting a little narrow there. So, what about advice? Do you have uh, some parting words or a little nugget you'd like to share with listeners about writing memoir or writing in general? I mean, I think for me, the, the discipline was the key to me getting this out. I, I did not experience writer's block. I, I never sat in front of my computer and stared at a blank screen during this process. But I absolutely, you know, I did, I did it like I was going to work. Like I came into my office. I didn't take calls. I took calls on my lunch break that I designated <laughs> for myself. And I wrote that, like I told you, 11 to 7. Of course, there were exceptions, um, just like there would be if I had an office job. You know, I had a doctor's appointment or there was an emergency of some kind. But other than that, I really dedicated myself to putting words on the page during that time. I had the privilege of having an agent who was also like an editor. And so Mm -hmm. I was sending her pages as I went and getting her feedback, which was really helpful and get, getting direction from her. Too much of this, not enough of this. We need a scene here about this. You need to break up the addiction stuff, put something put something humorous here. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything humorous that happened in there? And so then I'd be like, er, yeah, I can put, <laughs> <laughs> I can put a scene there. I, this happened actually right around then. And that was great. So that was, that was really helpful. If I didn't have an agent, And I were writing, I would probably kick it over to one of the women in my writer's group and do the same thing with them and have them like be a beta reader for me because that was really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such an interesting kind of pressure cooker situation creating and also getting feedback right away. Mm -hmm. I don't think everyone could do that. Yeah, I also kept sitcoms on in the background the whole time. All, like, <laughs> I love Lucy and Mary Tyler Moore, and which is really like most people can't write with that kind of noise on. I can only write with the TV on. <laughs> I have never heard. I love that. I know. I, I know people have a lot of routines and like rituals yeah. around their writing. And I, I mean, I have my own too. And, and that's the first I've heard of the TV in the background. I think I'm too like fragile that way. My attention yeah. is too fragile. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so yeah, it's, I've never heard anybody say that either. I'm, I've yet to meet the person <laughs> who writes with the TV on, but literally, and I can't be anything I'm too interested in. It has to yeah. be background, but. Oh yeah. Also, oh yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's, that's my, that's my process. <laughs> oh, wow. Laura, thank you so much for being my guest. And um, I'm just, I'm just so happy that we got to spend this time together. And I'm so excited for your book release. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on and dropping this, you know, when my book drops so that people can hopefully go right to Amazon and order it. <laughs> and yes. No, that's that's such, you know, you're such a girlfriend, Ronnie. Oh. I really appreciate you. Oh, I'm, I really appreciate you. And I'm going to have all the links in the show notes. And there will be some quick links to purchase Stash. Thank you. And, Thank you. Um, oh, my gosh, I, I'm just so happy that we had this time. And best of luck with your debut. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And um, I will, you know, you'll be with me along the way. So <laughs> <laughs> we will see how it goes. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. 
You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.